Well, hey, good morning, Vineyard. Uh, welcome back. We're glad to be doing church with you again for another week. Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm really excited and really honored to be able to continue in the series that we started last week called What's It Gonna Take? And I love that question. It can mean a whole lot of different things. You can ask it from a lot of different angles. But today what I want to ask is, what's it gonna take for you and me to make room in our hearts for Jesus to be our Lord? What does that relationship demand of us? What does it ask of us? What it makes me think of um, is how, you know, my wife and I, we live in a tiny little duplex in Wilmore right now. It's the smallest place I've ever lived in. It's about 800 square feet total. And we, uh, we would like things to be a little bit different. You know, we'd love to have a bigger kitchen table where we could have dinner with more people. My parents have been trying to give us uh, this piano. They've been trying to give it to me for about seven years. But we have to keep asking, what would it take for us to do that? What would have to change? What would have to be shifted around? And the reality is, if, you know, we could probably get a bigger kitchen table. But if we wanted to get from the kitchen into the living room, we'd probably have to crawl under it or, or you, know, you know, roll over it. Or if we put the piano in the living room, we'd have to be opening the front door into the back of the couch and we'd be having to hop over the couch just to get through the hallway to our bedroom at the end of the day. So there's just not always room for everything that we want. And I think that the human heart is a lot like that. And this is something Jesus talks about a lot in the Gospels. He says that you can't serve God and money. No man can have two masters because you're going to love the one and you're going to hate the other one, he says that you can't put new wine into old wineskins because it's going to cause the wineskins to burst. So there's just this, there's this kingdom paradigm wherein, uh, you know, the, the old and the new, so my life before Jesus and my life after Jesus, they just can't mesh up. They, there's not always room for both of those things in there. And so the text we're looking at today, someone asked the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And I just wanna point out something to you in that text. You know, when you inherit something, there's no doing to do. You don't have to do something to inherit. When you inherit, it's totally free. But you inherit things um, because you are a beneficiary and you are a beneficiary because of a relationship that you have with someone. So we're not asking, you know, what do I have to do to earn grace? Grace is totally, totally free. But grace starts a process in you and me. And when we have a relationship with God, some things have to change and some things have to shift around. And what's always been there can't always stay when Jesus comes onto the scene. And so the way that Jesus responds to this question tells us that that relationship is going to change some things in you and me. So what do we have to do to make room for Jesus. So we're going to look at the text today. It's in Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. And this is the story of the rich young man, or Luke's account calls him the rich young ruler. Uh, but I love Mark's account because he adds just a couple of details that I think really change the story. So we're going to go ahead and read the text today, and then we'll hop into it. So uh, as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus looking at him, 
loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, there is a lot there, so we're going to buckle up and I'm going to get through it and stay as on track as I possibly can. But let's start with this guy that comes up to Jesus. You know, we're not given a whole lot of information about him. Luke's account says that he's a ruler of some sort, and all the accounts say that he was very rich or had many possessions. Aside from that, we don't necessarily know a lot, but we know he's got money. And we know he's got a reputation. We know that people know who he is and he's a big deal. But the way that he comes up to Jesus and the question that he asks Jesus, they tell us a lot. In Luke's account, it just says that he asks Jesus. In Matthew's account, it just says he approached Jesus. But I love Mark because he says he ran up and he knelt. Now, I don't necessarily understand why, but in their culture, running was seen as a shameful act. It's not something you do if you're a dignified person. Maybe they just don't don't wanna come across like they're in a hurry, or maybe they just wanna feel like everything's always taken care of for them. I don't know what that's all about. But this guy is humbling himself and coming to Jesus. But not only does he run, he also kneels in front of Jesus. He gives Jesus a great sign of respect. And even though this guy's a big deal, he doesn't send someone else to schedule an appointment with Jesus. He doesn't try to call Jesus and get him to come over to his house. He seeks Jesus where Jesus is. And that tells us a whole lot. He's interested in what Jesus has to say. So then he asks Jesus this question. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And you and I, if, you know, if we've uh, read the Bible before or heard the gospel time and time again, we might just kind of run by him calling Jesus a good teacher. But you have to understand that in this day and age, that's not a title, that's not a, a, a greeting that you give to any old person. Uh, you don't even give that to a rabbi of the day. Rabbis would occasionally use the word good But if they did, it's only ever to refer to God. So this isn't a casual, you know, hey man, I want to know what you think about this. Or uh, excuse me, professor, I would like to inquire as to your opinion on an important matter. No, he's saying, I recognize goodness in you. I recognize maybe even divinity in you. And I want to hear what you have to say. And Jesus doesn't run by this greeting either. He says, why do you call me good? Because you know there's only one person who's good, and that's God. So what exactly are you saying when you call me good teacher? Some people have suggested that Jesus is kind of distancing himself from this greeting or saying that he's not actually divine, that he's not actually God. But I think the opposite is true. I think Jesus is kind of in a really subtle and maybe underhanded kind of way. He's saying, hey, what you picking up on here? 
What, did, what have you figured out? You know, Jesus is, is talking to Peter at one point and he says, flesh and blood haven't told you this, but the spirit of God has. And I think this is one of those kind of things where Jesus is, is telling this guy that he's on the right track. And you're asking, when you ask a good teacher this question, you're asking God's opinion on your question. And this is a dangerous thing for this guy to do. It's a dangerous person for this guy to ask. You know, when the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my thoughts and see if there's a wicked way in me. Did you know that's not a prayer that you can pray arrogantly? And if you do pray it arrogantly, trust me, you're not gonna stay arrogant for very long because that is a prayer that God will answer. It's not coming up to God and saying, all right, God, check me out, see what you find. See if you find anything, try me. No, if anything, I think it's kind of like going into a surgeon's operating room and saying, hey, I don't know what's in me. I can't figure it out. I don't know what's wrong, but I need you to cut me open. I need you to find what you need to find. I need you to run whatever tests you have to run. And I need you to fix what's going on in here because what, what's going on in here isn't like you. And I want it to be like you. The book of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it, it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But then a few verses later, it says, we can boldly approach the throne of grace and find help and mercy in our time of need. And I love that. So this guy comes up to Jesus. He gives him a very respectful greeting. He asks him a very important question. And Jesus responds uh, to, to his question. And I wonder, what do you think this guy thought the answer was going to be? You know, when we read on in the text, we see that the disciples are shocked that a rich man is going to have a hard time entering the kingdom of God. So we know that rich people were seen as being a big deal, and they were the ones that people thought that God favored. So maybe his rabbi, maybe his teachers and his friends were saying, hey, no, you're good. You're in good shape. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to change anything because you got it going on. And God obviously favors you, so you don't need to do anything more to inherit eternal life. But the way this guy comes to Jesus, all the respect he's showing Jesus, the fact that he seeks Jesus out where he is, that tells me, and I'm speculating just a little bit, but I don't think I'm far off here, that this guy knows that he doesn't have it. That when he lays his head down at night, he doesn't have peace about the day that he dies. He doesn't know for sure that he's going to inherit eternal life. And so that's why he seeks out Jesus. And the other thing is Jesus has a tendency to know what's up with people. You know, I think Jesus answers his question because he's asking Jesus earnestly. He's coming to Jesus humbly. And I think that's why Jesus dignifies him with the response. So Jesus replies and he walks him through the commandments. Now, this is what's called the second table of the law. So the, the commandments are kind of divided up into how we interact with and treat God and how we interact with and treat each other. And so Jesus walks him through these. He says, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, uh, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And this guy says, yeah, Jesus, I've been doing that. I've done that since I was a little kid. And I want you to notice something here. Jesus doesn't call him a liar. 
from what we know, reading through the Gospels, we know that Jesus gets to how the law goes more than skin deep, or how the law has a spirit, and it also has a letter. So there's what the law says, which is the letter of the law, but then there's also the spirit of the law, which is what God's trying to get at in giving you that commandment. So Jesus, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, um, if you have even looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already broken the statute on adultery. Or if you've had a conflict with someone in your life and it's escalated to the point of violence, even if it's just in your mind, even if you've never laid a finger on them, you've already broken that law. It reminds me of, uh, you know, when you're a little kid and you're taking a long road trip and you've got a sibling, they're sitting next to you and uh, they're poking you and they're touching you and they're smacking you and they see, dad, Billy's, Billy's, t uh, you know, he's, he's, he's poking me. Tell him to stop. Tell Billy to stop touching me. And, and dad says, Billy, stop touching your brother. And then what does Billy do? Billy gets real close and he goes, I'm not touching you. Now, what you meant was, Billy, stop bothering me. But what, the, what your dad said is, Billy, don't touch him. And so Billy stops touching you, but he gets real close and he's still getting under your skin. So there's a spirit and there's a letter to these commands. And Jesus is saying that even if you break, even if you keep the entire letter of the law, even if you never technically violate the law, your thoughts go there. He's showing us that our thoughts and our intentions and our minds are unlike God, not just our actions. But again, Jesus doesn't call him a liar, even though Jesus had every right to. Jesus could have set the guy straight. Jesus could have said, let me tell you how you're wrong. Let me show you, let me walk you through what I meant when I gave these commands. But he doesn't. He actually just kind of breezes right by this guy's big moral claim about how good he is and how he's kept all these commandments. And I think that's important. But Mark says this was Jesus's response to this young man. He looked at him and he loved him. And he said, you lack one thing. Go sell all of your possessions. Give the money to the poor. Don't keep any of it. You'll have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. And this ends the conversation. Full stop. Just like that. And the young man, he doesn't argue with Jesus here. I think that's worth noting. He doesn't, he doesn't you know, start bickering with Jesus about how he's wrong and how I should never have called you good teacher because you're wrong and you have no idea what you're talking about and you're just full of it. All three of the accounts in the gospels say that he goes away sorrowful. And I think that's because he knew that Jesus hit the nail right on the head. Jesus got to the one thing that he was gonna have a hard time doing in order to follow Jesus. It would have been nice if Jesus said, you know, you've got eight of these 10 commandments down really well, so why don't you just go work on these other two, and then I think you'll be in good shape. Or if Jesus had said, uh, you know, I think you need to just cut a big check to your local charity, and maybe go spend a few hours volunteering there as well. But Jesus just, he does the one thing that he couldn't do. And I think he still respected Jesus. I think maybe he would have followed Jesus, but if he did, this thing that he didn't do that Jesus commanded him to do, it would have stayed there and it would have lingered and it would have come up over and over and over again. And he would have never had the fullness of a relationship with Jesus. Now, I think there's a temptation here to look at this text and look at this story and to make it all about money. 
And to say that God somehow doesn't want you to have money or God doesn't like rich people or rich people can't follow Jesus. But I think that if that's the conclusion we draw here, we're missing a huge part of the picture. You know, ironically, I think some of us want this to be about money because maybe you don't have a lot and maybe you don't have a lot of stuff and maybe you can look at this and say, that's not me. I don't have any problems with that. I don't have attachments to my stuff. But can I just tell you that when you let something define you, it's going to define you either way. It's going to define you whether you have it or whether you don't. So if money is what you find your security in, you're going to be insecure without it. You're going to be over-secure if you have it. And that's not, it's not something that we can find our security in. <clears throat> this passage, I believe, is not about money, but it's about discipleship. Now, if you read through the Gospels, there are a lot of things that Jesus asks people to part with. All of the disciples, he's just walking along and he says, hey, I want you to come follow me. Matthew, tax collector, making good money. I want you to end your shift right now and come follow me. And that's exactly what he did. If you read in Luke chapter 14, Jesus says something. He, asked, uh, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he can't be my disciple. Jesus said that. Lovey-dovey, ooey-gooey, Jesus said that. And he's not telling you to hate people. He's saying you need to despise them. They can't be your Lord. You can't look for your approval and your security in people. I'm not going to let you put people ahead of me because sometimes people are going to ask us to do things and compromise ourselves in a way that Jesus won't allow. And we can follow after Jesus knowing that as we follow Jesus and as we love Jesus, we're going to love our family in return because he's good, but love doesn't always look like indulgence. So Jesus asks us to give up our sin and our significance. He asks us to give up our identifiers and our idols. And after this man goes away, he looks around and he's talking to his disciples and he says, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And jaws just drop around the room and the disciples are confused and they're amazed at his words. And Jesus is like, guys, come on, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth or some, some texts say those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It would be easier to take a camel and pass it through the eye of a needle than it will be for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And that saying of Jesus is a little bit confusing to me. It's a little bit perplexing. I don't know if he's thinking, if, I don't know if he's maybe confusing a camel with like an octopus. Have you ever seen videos of like an octopus and how they can just invert themselves and move through like a coffee can, like a really small space? I don't know if that's what Jesus is thinking of. But in reading this, or in reading for this, I saw something that gave me a little bit of pause. So I'm going to share it with you. Some people suggest that the word Jesus uses for camel might be the same word for rope. And that's because they would make ropes out of camel's hair and they would wind it together and it would be strong. Um, and, and, and that's what Jesus is saying. So maybe Jesus is saying it's harder for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God than it is to take a rope and pass it through the eye of a needle. Now you can't just take a big, thick, strong rope and just jam it through and shove it through the eye of a needle. But I think it's possible to get it through there. You have to take something that someone has worked really hard at, and you have to undo it, strand by strand. Something that was strong 
has to become weak. Something that took a lot of time has to be completely undone. Something that was big has to become small. And that's the only way that it's going to get through there. And that's what Jesus asks of us. He asks us not to put our achievements and our accomplishments in place of our security in him. But I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. I think we need to ask ourselves, what's the equivalent of riches in their culture? What do we look at and assume that God blesses? Who who are the people that we look at and we say they've got it together, so God must be okay with them. They must be in with God. They must have it going on. For some of us, I do think it probably is money, but maybe maybe it's talent. Maybe it's a degree. Maybe it's charisma. Maybe it's someone who has a bigger and better business than you. You know, maybe it's someone who has more friends. Maybe it's someone who's more generous than you or more compassionate than you or just more experienced and older than you. If you're a Christian, ask yourself this question. Who do or who would I have the hardest time preaching the gospel to? What I think that question gets at is this. Are there people for whom we don't think that the gospel is urgent? Do we look at people who've achieved a lot in their time and say, okay, they don't need this. They've got it going on. Or do we believe one of the core premises of the gospel that we are all broken and sinful before God? I think in our culture, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I think in our culture, a leading candidate for this is morality, but I'd rather call it self-righteousness. We live in a culture that wants to think itself good and right and fair and progressive and just. You know, we, we, we live in a culture where, you know, you can take a lot of pride in being on the right side of the debate. Or how many times do you hear the phrase, don't you want to be on the right side of history? I think we worship being right. We love being right. And it's hard to preach the gospel to a culture that's going to look at the gospel and say, why do I need that? I'm good. I'm a good person. I do good things. I believe good things. I fight for these causes. It's hard to preach the gospel there, but we have to believe it. You know, our culture, you can dig up something that someone put on social media or on the internet five, ten years ago, however long ago, and they can lose their job like that because of something that they said. In our culture, if you said it once, you've said it forever. And there's no room for grace. There's no room for forgiveness there. There's no gospel there. But that's exactly why the gospel has to go there. The thing about the gospel is it puts all of humanity on a level playing field. You know, if you were to put 10 people in a room, which you can do now, um, someone's going to have the most money. And someone's going to have the best degree. And someone's going to run the fastest mile. And someone's going to have the best bench press. And someone's going to have read the most books. And someone's going to have more experience studying the Bible. And there's always going to be someone who's the best or the biggest at everything or at something. But what's it all for? Do we really believe that that gets us somewhere with God? Or do we believe that the gospel says that no matter what you have, money, looks, intelligence, business acumen, compassion, or morality, that you're born broken and that you need a savior. The, the story of the rich young man, it shows us that God isn't impressed with what we have or what we do. He doesn't need our riches. He doesn't need our morality either. 
You know, Jesus had a lot of interactions with other prominent people. Read through the Gospels sometimes. See how he deals with Pharisees and scribes. When they try to trap him in his words and, and disqualify him based on something he says, he always knows how to spin the question to trap them in their words instead. But Jesus doesn't hate everyone who, who is, a, is a person of status. You know, if you read through, look at John chapter 4 and see an official come to Jesus and ask him humbly to heal his son. Read Luke chapter 7. See that a centurion sent for Jesus and asked him to heal his servant. And when Jesus shows up at this guy's house, he says, Jesus, I didn't call for you because I didn't think you'd come because I didn't think I was worthy for you to be under my roof. He's a centurion. You know, history people don't at me, but I think this is about a four-star general in our day and age. This guy's a big deal, but he doesn't even think that Jesus, that he doesn't, he doesn't even think he deserves to have Jesus under his roof. And so this isn't, this isn't, you know, Jesus as Robin Hood, just hating on people who have money and who have status. This is a pro-discipleship message. This is a pro-people message. This is a message that says, come follow me. You know, Mark points out <clears throat> that Jesus looked at this young man and he loved him and he answered his question. And I think here's why that is. Because Jesus Christ is the perfect rich man who kept the law and who gave everything to have relationship with us. 2 Corinthians 8 chapter 9 says that Jesus was rich, but for our sakes he became poor. Jesus had glory. Jesus had angels. Jesus had community with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He had everything he could ever need or ever want in heaven. But he gave all that up. He came down to this ball of dirt. And you know, Jesus had a body. Jesus probably slept on the ground and he got sore. Jesus got tired and he took naps. And Jesus hung out on this ball of dirt that we call home for now, but not forever. Because we needed him. Not because he needed us but because he wanted to have relationship with us and he gave up everything that he had to seek out that relationship. And so the story, the interaction with the rich young man just shows us that Jesus is asking the same thing of us that he did for himself, or that he did himself. And let me throw something else out there to you. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and to follow after him. But when Jesus was being paraded through town and up the hill to where he was going to be crucified, someone helped Jesus carry his cross. You know that? So don't make this about how good you are at being a disciple of Jesus. Let other people help you bear your burdens. Let other people help you in following Jesus. It's not about being a perfect disciple. It's not about being the best at reading your Bible. It's not about, you know, having a, having a streak of reading or how many hours a day you spend praying, but it's about following after Jesus. Let me ask you a question before we close up today. Where does your significance lie? Where do you find your security and your identity? Is it in something you've done? Is it in how much money you have? Is it in the degree that you have? Is it in your business? Is it in how, you know, how much you know, how much you've read, how much, you know, how, how good you are at this Christianity thing? Is it because of things you believe? Is it because of which side of the political aisle you're on? Do you believe that God favors you more because of that? Or maybe you're on the other side of this and maybe you need to hear that everybody gets to play. 
that everyone has a chance and that God doesn't need you to be rich or to be successful or to be the best at this before you can come follow him. Jesus asked the rich man to give up everything that he had. And so what I take away from that is we come to Jesus with absolutely nothing and we follow him with everything because that's what he asks us to do. This is the last thing I want to say. Jesus says that no one takes his life from him, but he gives it willingly. Now, you don't have to be an expert in self-sacrifice to be a Christian. Grace is free for you today. But Jesus wants you to give your life in return. Jesus wants you to follow him out of response to his goodness and his graciousness today. That's the gospel. So we're asking, what does it take for Jesus to be Lord of my life? What does it take for me to make room for Jesus? It takes him being your security. It takes him being your identity and your identity to be found in him and nowhere else. Who has the power to raise the dead? Who can save us from our sin? He is our hope, our righteousness, Jesus, only Jesus. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he gave up everything that he had to come be with us and to give us relationship with you so that we could inherit eternal life, which we cannot possibly earn for ourselves. We thank you that you prepare a seat at the table for us if we would just repent, turn from our sin, and follow after you with everything we have. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come, give us the grace, convict us of our sin, show us ways in which we're not like you, and help us to respond to that today. We thank you for the gift of forgiveness that you give to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're stirred today, if the Holy Spirit is nudging you and prompting you, I just want to encourage you, come on over to our website, vineyardrichmond.com. There's a prayer chat button in the bottom right-hand corner, and there's a real person who would love to pray with you, no matter what's going on. If you need help, if you, if you just need to tell someone what's going on, we're there for that. If you want to make the decision to follow Jesus, we're there for that too. We would love to see that happen. Regardless, know that we love you. And God loves you. And I hope God blesses you and may you go in peace.